Luke 18, verses 15 through 17. Then they also brought infants to him, to Jesus, that he might touch them. But when the disciples saw it, they rebuked them. But Jesus called them to him and said, Let the little children come to me, and do not forbid them, for of such is the kingdom of God. Assuredly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God as a little child will by no means enter it. This is the very word of God. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we pray, O God, that you would renew our minds this day by the very words of the Son of God, your Son who came to give us the message of the kingdom of God. Help us, Father, to understand this message better. Clear our minds. Send your Holy Spirit to us. Change us. Renew us. Transform us. We pray, Father, that your word would change our lives. Amen and amen. Please be seated. Well, I prayed for God's guidance and direction for this message, and I trust this is the right one. So here we go. I encourage you to come back to the Word of God, to the words of Jesus, over and over again. Our family goes through the Gospels. I would say almost half the time in our family worship. We're always coming back to the Gospels of Jesus. Something very core about the Gospels of Jesus. We need to be getting into all of the Word. Absolutely. In fact, I'm thinking about moving into Romans. But, in the, at, the, at the church, in, in the messages. But, I do believe we need to come back to the words of Jesus because there's so much here that, that needs to realign our thinking. Jesus was a shock to the system when he came to the Pharisees, Sadducees, to the Jews at his time. And I'm telling you, brothers and sisters, he's still a shock to the system. He's a shock to me. He takes us by surprise. He renews our minds. And I believe there is a lot of theology in church teaching that doesn't take into account the Bible. That is the compendium or the thrust of what the Bible is teaching us. For some reason, we come in with prejudices and biases that disable us from seeing the the message, the thing that Jesus is trying to drive home for us. This is true for all of us. And so, I want to challenge you a bit this morning with the renewal of the mind. When I come to the Word of God, I'm telling myself, renew my mind, renew my mind, renew my mind. I need the Word of God to transform my thinking. And that applies to us this morning as well. Scriptures challenge us. They challenge our preconceived notions, our cultural viewpoints, and our bad theologies. So when we come back to the words of Jesus, we need to be asking ourselves, what did he really mean to say by that? What is it that he's saying to us? And I I, I believe that we are not thinking very well as Jesus thinks. We have so much of the American culture, 
the individualistic culture that interferes with covenantal thinking, biblical thinking. And so it takes time. I, I have to confess myself, I, I'm in process. And, and God's still working on the way I think about everything. But I'd like to get the thrust this morning from this passage concerning the invitation of Jesus to these little ones. And, uh, and as we get to the thrust, the three points that I think are obvious from the passage. So I want to bring these three points to your attention this morning. The first of which is this. We must remove all stumbling blocks from children coming to Jesus. That's number one. Let's remove all stumbling blocks from children coming to Jesus. If they're in the proximate location of where Jesus is, which, by the way, is right here, especially within the church, because Jesus said where two or three are gathered, in the context of the church, Jesus is there in the midst. And so, especially when it comes to the church, we must be ever so careful to remove all obstacles from our children coming to Jesus. The disciples were rebuking these moms who were trying to bring their children to Jesus for his touch, for his blessing, for his prayers, for his intercession. And, and the, the disciples were resisting these moms. And Jesus was appalled by this. He says, no, no, let the little children come to me and forbid them not. So the first obvious lesson to all of us is if there's any obstacle, children coming to Jesus, we must remove those obstacles. And for some reason, the church is very good at this. Church leaders, certain theological systems, they do get in the way of Jesus, of children coming to Jesus and entering into the kingdom of God. How do they do this? What prevents children from coming to Jesus? Well, number one, the church institution itself can be an obstacle. The theology, of course. The church can be too adult-driven. It's interesting that the church can be so adult-driven that children don't belong even in the worship services. Did you ever notice that? We were at a church visiting in Las Vegas a number of years ago. And we were in the very back row, and yet I think the elders came several times to try to remove our children from the service. Uh, so this is very common today, that the church is mainly for adults. Well, that's, that's a completely wrong way of thinking of the church of Jesus Christ. Well, all the way through Scripture, the children are there. Old Testament, New Testament, we're always gathering the infants, gathering the children, etc. So family, children are always integrated into the services. So, but somehow the church has become a very complicated affair and very adult-driven and not trunky enough. The church loses sight of the basic trunky gospel such that the gospel isn't speaking to children and, or anybody else, but it becomes a very complicated sort of thing. The trunk is not accessible. When I say trunk, I'm the very basic gospel message needs to keep coming through such that the children understand these things, that the little ones, as well as ourselves, understand that Jesus has come to save us from the bad things that we do. This needs to be an obvious thing. One, that we have a problem with sin, and two, that Jesus has come to save us and to help us and to take us to heaven. These sorts of truths need to be accessible to us. The trunk needs to be accessible, absolutely. Moreover, anger, control freakiness, hypocrisy with parents is a major stumbling block for children and needs to be removed. We, 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 we when our, 
our words do not comport with our life and when Sunday doesn't look like Monday. And this, of course, is hardwired into the American Christian experience very much. Uh, we, we are acting one way on Sunday and then Monday we turn secular. We have the spiritual secular thing that is so sharply divided. I remember one time a little child was being babysat by young lady in our church. This is a family that goes to another church somewhere. And, and this, uh, this young lady said to the child, we need to pray about that. And the little girl said, we only do that on Sundays. I thought this was pretty representative of what happens in the modern church. Is we have this dualism that separates out Sunday from Monday, it's pure hypocrisy. It's a fakiness. It's a fake faith that is so represented by so much of America today. So any kind of inconsistency, hypocrisy is an inconsistency between our inside and our outside, between our Sundays and Mondays. So any kind of hypocrisy is a stumbling block for children. Sometimes children are shuffled off to systems of learning that contradict biblical perspectives. We talk about that often. And so what, what, what's the result? Children are confused. On Sunday, they learn about God creating them. On Monday, they're learning about how they evolved out of the slime. So there's a contradiction going on. There are different worldviews. In fact, in the curriculum itself, we have to be very cautious that we're not throwing all the Greek material at our children, assuming that the basic worldview of the Greeks is equated to a biblical worldview of ethics and epistemology and metaphysics and such. No, no, no. These are different worldviews. There's much conflict between a a biblical perspective and the Greek perspective or the post-Christian perspective or what have you. So these these inconsistencies that confuse children, they, 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 they become stumbling blocks for children. Also the hesitation to speak about Jesus and the gospel in the home. I think what happens is the real you shows up on Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday. And you may be saying amen to the gospel on a Sunday, but, but is the gospel that central in our lives? When we're disciplining our children, do we find ourselves reverting back to Jesus? That, you know, Jesus can save you from this. Do we talk of Jesus in the home? Do we really believe in Jesus such that we bring up Jesus throughout the week? Bring your children to Jesus. Forbid them not. So that's the first thing. Remove every obstacle in the way of children coming to Jesus. Now, I want to give you an example of this that may be a bit controversial, but I think it's important for us to consider this as a church congregation. Many of you are raising children, so I think this is appropriate for all of us. There was an author who put together a very famous book on raising children in Christian homes, written by a Reformed Baptist and a homeschooling-oriented sort of a writer, And so I pulled this book off my shelf, and I found a couple of quotes that I thought I'd give to you as an illustration of what I'm talking about, of how our modern theological systems are actually stumbling children. So let me give you a couple examples. The first one is this, first quote from the book. Listen, children are not disciples of Jesus. Not one child was discipled in the book of Acts. Well, there weren't any women taking communion in the New Testament either. So should we forbid our our ladies from taking the Lord's Supper? Okay. But whatever the case is, what this man is saying is you are not discipling your children in your home. 
until they're 15, 16, 17, 18 years of age, until they profess faith in Jesus. Now, I encourage our families to be good farmers, which means what? Which means that you, you plant the seed, you water the seed, and that fruit-bearing plant may not show itself for years. We don't know what's going on under the surface, but we have to, we have to wait patiently upon God to bring forth the fruit. Here's another quote from the book. When your child says, I believe in Jesus, do not take this profession on face value. If you ask a child, are you willing to follow Jesus, he may say yes, but to accept that is reckless and inexcusable. Children are fickle, ignorant, and easily deceived. When they are asked about their confession of faith, what they really believe, they don't know what to say. Now, how do we interact with this? What would Jesus say to this? Here's what Jesus would say to that. Listen. Jesus would say this, let the little children come to me and do not forbid them, for of such is the kingdom of God. Truly, truly, assuredly, verily, absolutely, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God as a little child will by no means enter into it. Okay, yes, children are fickle, ignorant, easily deceived. But what does the word of God say about children? This is so essential for us that we bring in what the Word says. What does Jesus say? Jesus says, let the little children come to me. Children in Christian homes are called holy or hagias. They are the saints. Children are planted in the soil, and they have the best shot at germination because they are planted in the soil. God has already blessed them with his promises. Jesus blesses them by his touch, by his intercession and by his blessings. So when our children pray, and they do, little two-year-olds, the three-year-olds in our homes, they're praying. We ask them to pray sometimes over the dinner. Uh, When they pray, when they speak of Jesus, don't say, I doubt that. Don't say, you don't really believe that. Please don't say that. That's how you stumble a child. I think Jesus would rebuke you for that. He would say, let the little children come to me. That's what he would say. So it's not helpful to be doubtful about your children's professions of faith, whether it's saving faith or not. You may only have 39% certainty or something. Maybe, you know, he falls back into hitting his sister the next day, back to sinning or what have you. Well, when they're 29 years of age, guess what happens? As a pastor, I will tell you that they're back to sinning next week. So now maybe we have a 69% confidence that these uh, folks have a saving faith. Uh, So so what is it? How would we know? It's not easy to know for sure what is going on under the soil. But Christian parents are called to be hopeful and, and faithful in discipline and correction, gospel teaching, and spiritual guidance. And and most children raised in Christian homes don't have a dramatic conversion experience. This was imposed upon us in the 1700s by the Puritans and then later by the evangelicals and the revivals. So that that was all externalistic. It was imposed upon uh, American Christians. Uh, But for the most part, American Christians, uh, children raised in their homes, don't have a dramatic conversion experience such that they can point to the exact moment of their regeneration. My mother, for example, was a typical American evangelical. I was raised in a Baptist family. 
a very faithful Baptist family. I praise God. They planted the seed. They watered the seed over all those years. Beautiful and a wonderful family. But early on, my mother was more of a typical evangelical. She walked me through the child evangelism program. I prayed the prayer. Uh, got saved. This was in Portland, Oregon. Would have been about 1968. And my mom wrote the date into my Bible. And I have it somewhere. So if I need to, to regain the assurance of my salvation... All I need to do is look that up. I'm kidding. But the fact is, brothers and sisters, that after that, I think I was four years of age at the time, it turned out I sinned a lot. And there were moments that I was convicted of my sin and I, I got saved over and over again. I've been saved so many times. I can't tell you how many times I've been saved. Some of you are saying, he still needs a lot of salvation, that boy. <laughs> I get it. I get it. But, but keep in mind that uh, we, we are not able to identify the moment of regeneration. Why? Because when you baptize and when we're teaching, we're planting the seed under the soil, and we don't have an x-ray to identify what's going on under the soil. It would be nice to see an R develop on the foreheads of our children. But, you know, any parent who's been around for more than 12 years understands it's an up and down. It's, it's, it's a crazy kind of a raising. We're pretty sure this happened then, but then this happened, then that happened, and so forth. So it's impossible for us to know for sure the moment of, of regeneration. Also, when it comes to baptism, let's talk about baptism just for a moment. People were baptized in the Bible uh, when the heads of household received the word. And in Acts chapter 2, it's the men and brethren that were receiving the word. And there were 2,000 of them baptized at that time. Then we read onwards throughout the book of Acts and we find entire households were baptized together as well. But there's, there's no requirement in Scripture for an intensive inquiry into a genuine profession of faith. Why is that? Because all of the baptisms occurred on the spot. Think about this. The Ethiopian eunuch. Did, did, did the guy say, did, who was the brother that, was it Barnabas? Philip, that's right. Did Philip say, okay, now I'm not sure that you have a credible profession of faith. So, so let me hold out, and I'm going to walk with you for a while, and then once I've discipled you for a bit, then maybe I'll get on to the baptism. That's not what happened in Acts 2. That didn't happen in Acts 4. It doesn't happen with the Ethiopian eunuch. Didn't happen with Cornelius. Doesn't happen with the Philippian jailer. They baptized them on the spot, right there and then. They don't wait around for some credible profession of faith. That doesn't happen. Now you say, yeah, you're risking that some percentage of your children or some percentage of the, those adults being baptized will turn out, turn out like Simon Magus. They'll turn out to be not credible. Well, so be it. That's the way the church operates. That's biblical. That's the way the scriptures have done it. And remember, there are three imperatives in scripture concerning baptism. Very clear. The Great Commission, Matthew 28, 19. This is the clearest of all. And the Great Commission puts baptism before the teaching. Listen, this is what it says. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, 
teaching them to observe all things that I've commanded you, baptizing them, number one, then teaching them to observe all things that I've commanded you, number two. Acts chapter 22 and verse 16, again, puts baptism after confession and remission of sins in that order. Again, these are the imperative passages in Scripture. These are the clear passages relating to our responsibility to baptize the nations. Acts 22, 16 Here's what it says. Arise, that's number one. So the first thing you've got to do is arise. Number two, be baptized. That's number two. So you get up, you, you, you go out, you be baptized. And then number three, wash away your sins. And then number four, calling on the name of the Lord. In that order. So some people are very stuck on the order of these things. That's like a huge deal for them. But that's not what the Bible says. The Bible gives us lots of options here. In Acts chapter 2, 38... Peter is talking to the men and brethren who are listening. They receive the word, and here's what he says. Repent and be baptized. That is, change your mind concerning your willingness to be a disciple of Jesus and be baptized. Now, the major question before them is this. Are you willing to be discipled in this message that you've heard up to this point? That's the the question that was posed to them. Up to that point, the men were fairly resistant to Jesus. Now... Peter is asking them, are you, are you willing, are you ready to be discipled in the teachings of Jesus? I've given you a little bit, a few nuggets. What do you think? He says, repent, that is, change your mind in terms of the message that you have heard thus far and be baptized. But what do we do with children in Christian homes? Well, children in Christian homes are called to be discipled. Ephesians 6 and verse 4. These saints, these little children, are to be brought up in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's a disciple. That's a disciple. Children in Christian homes are to be brought up in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, do you wait till after conversion, or do you wait till after a confession of faith, before you get on to the business of bringing up your children in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord Jesus Christ? That's the question. Or does Ephesians 6.4 apply to every family listening, every parent listening, and every child that is among the saints to whom the book is directed? And I I would tell you, brothers and sisters, that we are to bring our children up in the nurture and the admonitions of the Lord Jesus Christ whether or not they have professed faith in him. So, now, here, here's where I, I really want to dig into this because I, I had a conversation this last week with a young man who was raised with a lot of American evangelicalism, which created a huge degree of hypocrisy in the lives of those that participated in it. But by God's grace... These young men, a couple of his brothers, they raised in a family of some 14, 15 kids, wound up in, in some decent churches that, that begin to identify the problem. And, and, but, but these children have been extremely wounded by this theological system in which evangelism and discipleship have been seriously separated one from the other. That is, you get Jesus over here, you get faith, you get a message of trusting in Jesus. Once that happened, we move on to obedience. We move on to discipleship. And there is this hard and fast 
separation of faith and works, evangelism and discipleship, and it has been extremely dangerous for so many children raised in Christian homes in the homeschooling movement over the last 30 to 40 years. So many have been wounded by this theology, and it's not healthy. So I want you to listen very carefully to Jesus wants our children to be raised in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord Jesus Christ. He wants our children raised in the faith of Jesus and the commands of Jesus at the same time. And there should not be a hard and fast separation between these things. Here's an example. Again, reading from this popular book on child raising. Here's the quote. Learning righteous conduct is a predominant aim for the child. Say it one more time. Learning righteous conduct is a predominant aim for the child raised in the Christian home. No. That's wrong. Because the thing that is assumed is we teach them righteous conduct with or without faith. That's the most damaging way to raise a child I could imagine. No, 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 no. We raise a child in righteous conduct and faith. We don't separate them. The separating out will produce legalism, hypocrisy, and externalism, and antinomianism, the whole thing. It destroys the faith. So destructive. So incredibly destructive. Believing and obedience must both, both be predominant at the same time. We must teach faith-based obedience, brothers and sisters. Not obedience. Do not teach your children to obey. Teach your children to obey in faith. I'm sure somebody's going to cut that right out and Broadcast it to the internet. Kevin Swanson says, do not teach your children to obey. No. What I'm saying is, teach your children to obey in faith in Jesus. It's a twofer. You've got to teach the twofer. And the separation of evangelism and discipleship has been terribly damaging to the American family. So I hope you understand what we're saying here. Whether the disciples have been converted or not, the teaching is the same. Believe in Jesus and walk with Him. Now, regeneration is a mystery, as I said. You don't have x-ray. You can't examine what's going on on the surface. But the teaching is the same. Come to Jesus. Believe in Jesus. We're looking for faith-based obedience, not just external compliance programmed in by positive and negative reinforcements, which is what so much of the child-raising literature does for us. One, one, one child-raising approach is you train your child like a horse. Just whip him until he obeys. And you get some kind of external form of obedience out of the kid. Horrible. Horrible. It's the wrong soteriology. It's the wrong theology. It's not biblical. And it creates a disaster. So, brothers and sisters, I encourage you to teach your children to believe in Jesus and to follow Him 
and, and keep the message as a single message. Child, you've sinned against God. Oh, but, but you need Jesus. That's why Jesus came. You can't just, child, stop it. Stop it, stop it. If you don't stop it, I'll whack you. That's your child-raising approach? That's a disaster. No, no, no. Child, you've sinned against God. But that's why the Son of God, the Creator, the person who made you, came all the way down to this earth to die on the cross, took nails and hands, and became very owie, very owie, big owie for Jesus. But He did that for you, for your sins. Now let's pray to Him. Let's, let's trust in Him. Let's trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy. I actually like that song. It brings it both together. Any kind of song that brings it together, very important. Let's, let's keep it together. It's, it's together. Faith works, distinct but not separate. Keep that together in the discipleship slash evangelistic message that you're bringing to your children. By the way, there's no way to judge a credible profession of faith. If you've been a pastor for more than seven years, if you've been a parent for more than seven years, how would you know? I've watched people, you know, in over 30, 40 years of ministry, and, and any pastor will tell you the same thing. You have no idea what's going on over, you know, 20, 30 years. There are false believers among children and adults, both, and nobody's going to know for sure. There's false believers whose professions you believe, and you think, oh, well, this, this person is doing really well. I, I don't think you can bat better than about 100 on identifying what professions are true and which are false and so forth. The people that you thought would make it wind up not making it. The people who were not looking very good wind up bearing quite a bit more fruit. And by the way, you see that with your children. You've got like a, a child who's like strong-willed and you're thinking there's no hope, this is a disaster, somebody help us, this child's going to hell forever, whatever, you know, you, especially at night when you're freaking out over the problems you're having with a child. That child turns out to be the most amazing, hyperactive kid for Jesus, uh, bringing the gospel to the cannibals at 32 years of age. You're like, what happened? Well, that's God's working in their life. Praise God. We don't know what's going on under the surface, but we just, we just keep working. We need to be faithful farmers. So that's all I'm saying is, is be faithful farmers. Be full of hope and faith in the promises of God. And I just want to encourage parents to not, not to give way to pessimism. Be hopeful. Be full of faith. You see a little glimmers of, of good things going on in a child's life. Grab onto that. Keep praying the promises of God. Be optimistic. Be faith-filled. Rely upon the Holy Spirit of God to complete the work that's begun in that child. But let's not be pessimistic pastors and parents concerning the little sprouts we're seeing in the field. These pessimistic farmers, you know what happens to a pessimistic farmer? They don't do anything. You think about a pessimistic farmer going, well, that's not going to work. You know, it doesn't plant, doesn't water. How much is he going to get? Not very much. So, how do we bring our children to Jesus? What, what are the roadblocks we need to get out of the way of our children? Well, the first thing I encourage you to do is to baptize them. Plant them in soil. We call that a means of grace. It's bringing your children into accessibility to the flow of grace. That's all it is. It's not ex opere operato. We don't say it's, oper it's automatic where somehow this grace just flows, but it puts them in that environment. You know, just as if you bring them to church, you, they hear the word of God, you bring them in contact with the, the grace of God. 
God works through the water. He works through the Lord's table. He works through the word. So there's a mysterious internal spiritual working that plays off under the soil. We don't understand exactly how the soil, the water, and everything else surrounding that little seed results in this amazing supernatural development of the seed. It kind of pops out. Maybe that seed's been hidden in some Pharaoh's tomb for 3,000 years, you know, whatever. They have these seeds, you know, that put in a tomb somewhere in Egypt. They pull that seed out, put it in the ground, and they get all that water and that, that dirt all around it. And after a while, you know, in, in three weeks, there's something amazing happens, like a resurrection of the seed. And this thing pops out, and a little bud comes up over the soil, and you begin to get a, a fruit that develops out of it. It's amazing. It's supernatural. It's amazing what God does as, as we plant the seed in the soil. And surround it with the word of God. And disciple our children. So what do we do? Bring your children to the word. Bring your children to the water. And bring your children to the table. Oh wait, I was going to say bring your children to the wine. Because there's a third W. But I'll just say. Bring your children to the water. Bring your children to the word. Bring your children to the table. Pull out all the stops. Whatever it takes. Get that seed in the soil. Get a little bit of water on it. Continue to water the, the, the seed with the word of God. Be a, be a man and a woman, a mom and a dad, a strong faith, calling out to God based on his promises. God, you promised the hearts would turn to the fathers. God, you promised our children would prophesy. So if your teenage son is taking the Lord's table and you begin to see a rise of sexual sin, divisiveness, in his life. And, and true, there's a warning. So let's say you have an eight-year-old son has been taking the Lord's Supper for quite some time. At 13 or 14 or 15 or 16 years of age, he's getting pretty divisive in the home. He's starting to engage in some kind of wrong sexual sin. What do you do? Well, exactly what you're told to do in 1 Corinthians 10 11. You've got to guard the table. And yes, there are times at which you're going to have to pull the table. And you may say at that point, I'm just not sure he's converted. And that's probably true, that there is a lack of certainty concerning the conversion of that young son. Moreover, there are warnings in the book of Proverbs and throughout the Word of God to our young sons and young daughters, and I think we do need to warn them from time to time. We need to say, you've got to make your calling and election sure. And when there's a hardness of heart developing, dug in stubborn disobedience, we, we might say at times we have less and less reason to believe that you are trusting in Christ, that you're following him, that you, you truly are going to heaven. I'm, I'm losing some confidence here, but I, I still pray and I hope and I believe in the promises of God for you. But then you warn him, don't go that way. You're going the way to hell, son. Repent, believe the gospel today. So we never stop saying repent and believe the gospel. That's the evangelical discipleship message that keeps coming back to the family and the church each and every day. Let's move on to the second thrust of this message coming from Jesus in verse 16. This is the second. The first is, let the little children come to me, forbid them not. The second is this, infants can and do make up the kingdom of heaven. Infants can and do make up the kingdom of heaven. Now, what, what is an infant? Well, these women brought the, their infants to Jesus. The word is brephos. The word brephos is the Greek word for a nursing baby. So there's no question whatsoever 
that they were bringing nursing babies to Jesus. So here are these nursing infants, and Jesus looks at these nursing infants, and what does he say? Of such is the kingdom of heaven. This means that either the child is part of the visible church or actually regenerated, either way. Again, let me read from this popular book on child raising. Quote, children are naive. Their judgment is shallow. Decisions to follow Jesus must be made at an adult level. There's something wrong with that. At this point, does anybody here go, there's something wrong with that? After we have contrasted this book with the words of Jesus, does anybody here go, that's not right? That's messed up. Children lack the maturity of mind to understand the choices they're making. Brothers and sisters, I I, I disagree with that. What would Jesus say to this? Jesus would say something like this. Of such is the kingdom of heaven. That's what Jesus would say. Of such is the kingdom of heaven. That's what Jesus would say. Now do you see how our our Western, individualistic, adult-based theology has messed us up? I believe the power of the Holy Spirit of God can enter a child as much as an adult. The Holy Spirit came upon John the Baptist in his mother's womb. And that's prior to the outpouring of the Holy Spirit in the New Covenant. Think about that. The New Covenant increases the odds that a two-year-old will prophesy. That's Joel 2. Our children now will prophesy. Acts 2, Peter announces it, saying, our children will now prophesy. You thought John the Baptist was impressive, filled with the Holy Spirit in his parents' womb. You wait till the outpouring of the Holy Spirit comes down. And then we're going to see a multiplying effect, and it will be awesome. That's what it says here. So, oh man, this is going to take some faith to receive this. That your two-year-old will prophesy, that is, in a broad sense, bring the word of God, say the word of God. Some of our children, I remember one time I was doubting about whether I'd find my wallet. Remember that story? I lost my wallet while I was tying something down way out in Steamboat Springs. And then like two hours later, I go, I think I just dropped my wallet out on that highway. And my little son, what was it, I don't know, seven, eight years of age, says, Dad, have you prayed about it? And I thought to myself, a lot of good that will do. That was two hours back. It was out in the snow. It was, it's a disaster. I'll never see that wallet again. And then come home, of course, hit the answering machine. Hello, my name's John, and I was, uh, I was going about 65 miles an hour down the highway, and I'm really good at finding things on the side of the road, and I saw your wallet. <laughs> and I went back and got it, and I got it for you. Want me to mail it to you? Out of the mouths of babes and sucklings, you have ordained strength. Amen. And let me illustrate this one more time. Again, this one isn't exactly, you know, the two-year-old. And I get that. But this idea that, you know, you've got to be 15, 16, 17, 18 years old before you make the decision, before a child can be filled with the Holy Spirit. No, no, I reject it. Richard Wormbrand tells the story. It's a rather intense story. I, I hope you all can handle it. But it's a 14-year-old son in a Romanian communist prison. He was tortured. This, this boy... I want you to understand, was being tortured in the presence of his father, who was a pastor in Romania at the time. 
Okay, so the boy is being whipped and whipped and whipped. And the pastor is about to give in to the communists. And the father says to his son, listen, Alexander, my son, I must say what they want me to say. I can't bear your beating anymore. And the son responded, Father, don't do me the injustice of having a traitor as a parent. Withstand. If they kill me, I will die with the words of Jesus on my lips. And here's what we read. The communist enraged fell upon the child and beat him to death. His blood splattered everywhere. I want you to listen to this for a second. There's a boy of faith. Is there a young man? Is there, is there a young man? Is there a young woman of faith like this in this room today? Could our four-year-old, our six-year-old, our eight-year-old represent this kind of faith as this 14-year-old boy did in that communist prison when he was tortured to death? I ask you the question today. Do you think the Holy Spirit could be upon a young man or a young woman, a young son, a young daughter perhaps? You think this boy can stand for Jesus and give the ramifications of his own death while his father was about to give in? I think so. That's exactly what happened in the story. So what does Jesus say about infants? He says, of such is the kingdom of heaven. And ultimately, this is why. Because we are committed to the fact that this is the work of God in the life of that child. You see, it's ultimately, I think, a submission to the sovereignty of God. The hand of God working in the child. The Holy Spirit blows where he wills. David experienced infant faith while in his mother's womb. That's Psalm 22. And the theologians will scratch their heads all day long trying to figure out how in the world the brain cells of a child are developed enough to to know that God created them and to believe in God. I think we're entering into a time where our young children are expressing more faith than their own parents. And I say praise God for that. I've seen it in this church. And I want my son, I want my daughters to stand on my shoulders. So the lesson today is, parents, you've got to believe God. You've got to trust Him. You've got to trust in His promises. Don't limit the work He can do in a one-year-old, a two-year-old, a three-year-old, a four-year-old. Perhaps the four-year-olds will prophesy this time around using the words of God as they understand them. And then the third point. This is the third thrust of the message of Jesus from verse 17. Jesus builds his entire kingdom on infants and children. And maybe this is the point that we're all missing. In this very complicated, theologically involved, you know, trying to work out your, your very complex theological system concerning your own salvation, in this sort of a world, Jesus actually says, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God as a little child will by no means enter into it. What is it to be as a little child? Because remember, if you're not as a little child, you just aren't going to enter the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. Or you're, put simply, nobody is going to go to heaven as an adult. We're all going to go to heaven as little children. So what is this? Well, number one, I think this is obvious. Children are very small. Should we get a child up here? I want to demonstrate. Okay, just look around you. You've got children all over the place. They're just little teeny guys. All they see are ankles and knees for the most part. I mean, think about it. I mean, get down like this where they are, about like this low, and crawl around like this. 
That's what it is to be a little child. All you see are ankles and knees. There isn't a child going, I'm big. I'm, 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 I'm a big man. I, I'm bigger than my dad. Children typically don't do that. Maybe there's an exception, but children are very small. Now, of course, we're only about double the size of a child. We're quite a bit smaller than Pike's Peak. You know, so I'm not sure why we get so excited about our bigness. But, but in maturity, what is the maturity? Well, generally what we're saying about maturity is it's a maturity in knowledge. When I think about maturity in knowledge, I think of Einstein. Einstein, as you see some of his pictures, he looks like a little kid. Have you ever seen Einstein's picture? I think he's sticking out his tongue in one of the pictures. You remember that? Right, exactly. Now, the reason for that is that, in general, I think that Einstein was a fairly humble person. And so, what needs to happen in the development of our knowledge of theology or anything else is that actually we become even more aware of our smallness. We become even more aware of the things we do not know. Much like, you know, leading the class up the well of knowledge. And so as we go up the well of knowledge on a Sunday morning or in any classroom, we, we bring the class up on the ladder and they look down at the poor slobs who didn't make it and haven't learned all this amazing stuff until we remove the cover or the lid from the well of knowledge and see a universe of information we do not know. There is a sense in which the more intelligent man becomes the more childlike man. Let me say that one more time. The more intelligent woman, the, the one who comes to know even more, becomes even more childlike because they see the, the, the sheer massive universe of knowledge. They, they see how much more exists in this endless ocean of knowledge all around them. In that sense, brothers and sisters, I, I believe we need to be childlike in our knowledge. Now, number two. The kingdom of heaven is also populated by the humble, the meek, the beggars. Blessed are the beggars, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And then number three, children tend to trust. Children don't doubt. They don't need to follow through on the transcendental argument for the existence of God. You typically don't have a three-year-old saying, Dad, I'm just not sure about some of this stuff. Um, Give me the transcendental. I need the entire book on evidence demands a verdict. Can I get that, Dad? I need, I need to know all of what Josh McDowell's ever written about evidence demanding a verdict. Dad, just explain the whole thing to me. I'm just not quite there to believe the sorts of things you've told me yet. Children don't do that. That's ridiculous. They don't question the truthfulness of what Jesus tells them. By the way, they don't resist when they're told about Santa Claus and the moon made of cheese. They just accept it. Children believe promise. Now, the reason they do so is because they're receiving it from the authority. Remember that we are very, very small, and we look up, and this is somewhat the transcendental argument anyway. If if somebody's saying, if I still need a transcendental argument, I'll give it to you. Okay, we're very, 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 very small. We don't know very much about the universe. We look up to somebody who's very, very big, who's very, very smart, who designed everything and created everything. And we say, could you explain a little bit of all this universe and a little bit about my problem and the solution? That's all we're doing. And so children, when they have an adult figure, a father in their life, they say to father, 
Father, does Santa Claus exist? And a godly father doesn't lie. They trust their father not to lie. And so they'll say, the father will say, no, Santa Claus doesn't exist, but God exists. Let's worship him. He gives us all these things. Children, not just on Christmas, but every day. God gives us all these things. And children say, oh, so Santa Claus doesn't exist, but God exists. And he gives us all these things. And they go, I believe that. Do you understand, guys? It's this simple. You've got to be like that to be a follower of Jesus. You have to be simple like a little child and believe like a little child does. Children are impressionable. They take things to heart. That's why we say impressionable. And I think we all need to be impressionable. Let me give you some examples. As adults, we get bored with flowers and bugs and sunsets. We had a child, I think it was Daniel, stared at an ant. Another child was concerned about a worm for an hour and a half. What is this? They're in awe of God's creation. They're impressionable. They're, look at this. They don't pass over things. They're very, in fact, our little grandson, he's so focused on things. And I believe he's absorbing. He's, he's absorbing these amazing concepts. The concept of mama. The concept of daddy. The concept of grandpa. It's just, it just like he's in awe. And I believe our children are, are truly impressionable in that sense. We become jaded and disinterested. Adults hold grudges, harbor fears, stay angry. Generally, children don't. It's amazing how quickly they forgive and move on. Adults don't forgive. Adults remember slights. Children forgive. Adults lose hope because their hopes have been dashed and destroyed so many times. Children don't. Children are okay with people calling them little children. This is my final point. Are you a little kid? Are you one of God's little kids? Do you see yourself as a little child? Would you be okay with Jesus saying, little children, come here. Just everybody gather around me. You okay with that? You're the little child. You are the little child. Would you prefer to be called a little child? I'm pushing it a little bit harder here. Because see, if you're not a little child, you cannot enter into heaven. You can't go to heaven. It's to be the little child in faith, independence, and trust. that are part of the kingdom of heaven. Amen and amen. Let's pray. Father God, teach us these things. Open up our hearts and minds to better understand what it is to be your child. Father, we've made this thing too complicated. Father, we have been too much of an adult church. We, we need to be a church full of kids, children, humble, full of faith, simple faith, childlike faith, trusting. Father, help us to exemplify this first for our children. And then, Father, help us that we not put any stumbling block at all in the way of children coming to Jesus. It just seems that we barely scratched the surface on this today. But, Father, change us, please. Change our minds. There's something fundamental that you're trying to teach us. I sense it. I don't know if I've got it. Father, but please, we pray your Holy Spirit to enable us to understand this very simple truth that Jesus has given to us.
its children will be part of the kingdom of God. Children like us. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. And we come to the Lord's table. Those of you visiting, just take a peek at the back of our bulletin. We have a little piece on how we do the Lord's table here at the church. But I want to talk about the Lord's table today. The Lord's table. What does that mean, children? What, what is the Lord's table? Well, it's the table that belongs to the Lord. Okay? It's the, the table that's the Lord's table. When you come to my house, there is pastor's table, or my children would call it dad's table, or my grandchildren would say, it's grandpa's table. So when you come to my table, you're coming to dad's table, pastor's table, and the children eat at my table. They willingly participate. They, they usually have a place uh, where they sit, and they know where they sit, so they participate, and they're there at, at my table. But here we are today at the Lord's table, and uh, I want to tell a story, a very unusual story, about um, what happened as Jesus brought his little children around his table. Remember, he referred to his disciples as little children. does that all the way through that uh, section in John. So he wanted to bring his little children together for his table. That is the Lord's table. And that was the first of the Lord's tables. He brought all his little children around the Lord's table. So there they were, all settled around the Lord's table. But there was one of his disciples who did not want to participate at the supper. Now, part of the supper involved this little piece in John 13, verse 3. And I want to read it to you. So again, there was one disciple that said, "Mm, not really wanting to participate. Okay, so this is how it went. This is the story. Very unusual. Listen. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come from God and was going to God, rose from supper and laid aside his garments took a towel and girded himself. After that, he poured water in a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet and to wipe them with a towel with which he was girded. And then he came to Simon Peter. Okay? Comes to Simon Peter. Peter said to him, Lord, are you washing my feet? Jesus answered and said, What I am doing, you do not understand now, but you will know after this. Peter said, You shall never wash my feet. What is this? This is a disciple that doesn't want to participate. This is one of the children who say, "Um, we're not going to participate in this, okay? But Jesus answered him and said, if I do not wash you, you have no part with me. And Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands, my head. And Jesus said to him, he who has bathed needs only to wash his feet. He is completely clean. Okay. So, again, I realize that this is only part of the meal. This isn't, we don't quite get to the Lord's table, but that they're sitting down for the meals, the Lord's Supper. And he takes the towel and he washes his disciples' feet. That's all part of the meal. So, if you say, Jesus, I don't want to participate with your table. Jesus will say this, oh, then you, do, you have no part with me. You, that's his response. If you're not participating in the activities of this table, you have no part with me. So if you push back from the table, then you have no part with me. That's the message that Jesus brought to Peter. And Peter immediately said, oh, I want to be part with you. And so he jumped back in and he was participating, right? So that's how he responded to it. So two things are required when you subject yourself to Jesus' food and Jesus' bath. So he got a bath and he got the food. That's the two things that happened. So in order to, to participate, you need to be like a little child. A little child... 
a little two-year-old, in fact, I saw this just last night, a little two- or three-year-old, uh, they get baths. Mama gives them baths, okay? And so Jesus gives us a bath, and that's what he did for, for Peter. Now, I wouldn't say it was a baptism, but it was a bath. Jesus cleans you up first, and then he brings you to the table. And I believe that's the order in which this happens. Now, I guess two things that you have to be when you come to the table of Jesus. You have to be like a little child. You have to be humble and let him wash your feet and let him feed you. And you have to believe him. And you have to believe that what he's doing for you is, is something that you accept, something that's good for you, and you receive it in faith. So Jesus has come today again to wash our feet and to feed us. And so slide up to the table. Take your place. Jesus is here to feed us spiritually with his body and his blood. And this is for our spiritual benefit. This, this is for our spiritual nurturing, our sustenance. A child, when he's, eat your spinach, hon. Eat your carrots, hon has to eventually obey mama and eat the spinach and the carrots for their spiritual nurture or this physical sustenance. Same thing at the table. So a couple of rules first. When you come to the Lord's table, a couple of rules. Number one, you must first be bathed. You need to be baptized first. That's, that's how we do our basic bath. We have an external sort of bath. It's called a baptism. So in order to come to the Lord's table, you have to be bathed first. Now again, Jesus instituted baptism after this event. But you have to have a bathing first. In this case, it was just a washing of the feet. And, so, and then secondly, here's the second thing. When you come to the table, you must not throw food at your brothers and sisters. Now that's a rule at my house too. Jesus doesn't want a divisive spirit. He doesn't want us doing a food fight. Don't be throwing things. Don't even glare at your brothers and sisters, it makes for an awkward dinner. Does that make sense? These are the ground rules. Before you come to the table, I'll make this as simple as I can. You have to be humble and believing. And you must, you must be bathed and you must not throw food at your brothers and sisters. You must love your brothers and sisters and forgive them so that we will not have an awkward dinner. Okay, so that's it. Those are the basic ground rules. Okay? Everybody okay with that? Okay, good. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for this table of the Lord Jesus Christ that he's come to bring us this nurturing, this nourishment for our bodies and souls. This one, a spiritual nourishment at this table. Father, thank you for the love of Christ. Thank you for his blood that washes us clean of our sins. And thank you for the nurturing of our spiritual life by His body and blood. Father, may this be a growing time, a spiritually growing time for this body. And Father, if there is any disagreements between our brothers and sisters, between any of us here, we just put that aside. We sit around the table and we receive the gift from Jesus who gave us His own life to make this happen. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.